Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I have... Fond memories of my mother's uh, cooking after we were released. And our next home was in the Mexican-American barrio. And everybody was Mexican. We were the only Japanese family, much less Asian family, in uh, our neighborhood of East L.A. My mother made friends with Mrs. Gonzalez, our neighbor. And they lived in each other's kitchens. And she learned how to cook Mexican. It was great. The best tacos and enchiladas were made by Mrs. Takei in East L.A. Welcome to Your Mama's Kitchen, the podcast that explores how we're shaped as adults by the kitchens we grew up in as kids. I'm Michelle Norris. On this episode, I'm talking to actor, author, and activist George Takei, and this is going to be a very special conversation. George is probably best known for playing Lieutenant Hikaru Sulu in Star Trek, a brave man who always kept his cool when things got a little hairy while the Starship Enterprise was exploring the final frontier. In real life, George has also explored several frontiers as a beloved actor celebrated across the globe, as an activist who consistently speaks out about human rights and civil rights, as a vocal and effective advocate for LGBTQ plus rights, and as an elder statesman that uses his youthful energy to get young people involved in politics. When you get to know George, it's easy to see why his whole life has been shaped by politics. Laughter comes easy for him. He's got a playful, almost mercurial sense of humor, and you'll hear that in this conversation. But that stands in stark contrast to a very painful family history. George Takei's family members were among the more than 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry that were rounded up and shipped away against their will to relocation camps after the Japanese military's surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. Those families had to leave behind businesses, farms, homes, and most of their belongings. This can be hard listening, but I'm grateful to George for reaching back and sharing these stories with us. This is a conversation about loss, but also about strength and resilience, and how food and family were at the center of all of that. In this episode, George Takei on overcoming a painful past, finding early acceptance among the Latino community in East L.A., gaining stardom through Star Trek, and the food that has sustained him throughout his life, including a dish called Japanese footballs. Trust me, they sound delicious. 
Um, George Takei, thank you so much for being with us. I was really looking forward to this conversation. Well, we waited a long time for this. So <laughs> well, I'm we're so going to make sure that together. it's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so very glad that you are with us. This is a, a podcast that explores how the things that we saw and heard and experienced and felt in our kitchens. And so as you think about the kitchens of your youth, because your family moved around a lot, what are the sights and the smells and the sounds that you think about when you close your eyes and think about your mama's kitchen? Well, I had a very unusual American childhood. I grew up behind American barbed wire fences with sentry towers and armed soldiers in them. And in the second camp we went to, In addition to the armed soldiers, we had machine guns pointed down at us. Pearl Harbor was bombed. And overnight, we were looked at with suspicion. We're Americans. My mother was born in Sacramento, California. My father was a San Franciscan. We three kids were born in Los Angeles. But we looked exactly like the people that bombed Pearl Harbor. But we lived in the United States. 125,000 of us were living on the West Coast. And this country went crazy. Racism and war hysteria is a venomous combination. They looked at us with suspicion and fear and outright hatred when we had nothing to do with Pearl Harbor. My parents were spat at, yelled at, and assaulted on the street. My father's car was painted uh, in red with three letters, J-A-P, on it. Mm. Some of our uh, uh, Japanese-American friends had rocks thrown through their windows. And even the great president of the United States got swept up in it. He signed Executive Order 9066, which ordered all Japanese Americans on the West Coast, from the Mexican border to the Canadian border, to be summarily rounded up with no charge, no trial, no due process. And I still remember, I was a five-year-old child, but I remember that morning in May, When our father came into the bedroom I shared with my brother Henry, he dressed us hurriedly and told us to wait in the living room while he and our mother did some last-minute packing. We had a baby sister. She was an infant in a crib in our parents' bedroom. And so Henry and I were dressed, and uh, we went to the living room, standing by the front window, just gazing out at the neighborhood. And suddenly we saw two soldiers, American soldiers, marching up our driveway. They carried rifles with shiny bayonets on them. They stomped up the front porch and with their fists began banging on the front door. Henry and I were 
petrified. My father came out of the, uh, my parents' bedroom, answered the door, and one of the soldiers pointed his bayonet at our father. The other uh, soldier said, get your family out of this house, our home. My father uh, gave uh, Henry and me boxes about uh, this size, tied in twine. They had prepared that. Mm-hmm. And he hefted two heavy suitcases. And we followed him out onto the driveway. And we waited for our mother to come out. And when my mother came out, uh, escorted by the other soldier, she had our baby sister in one arm and a huge duffel bag in the other. And tears were streaming down her cheeks. That morning is seared into my memory. I'm 86 years old, but I still remember that morning in May of 1942. For the next four years, my mother didn't have a kitchen. We all ate in a mess hall. We were first taken to the um, Santa Anita racetrack. Uh, we were taken to a bus caravan, uh, about uh, four buses. And we were un- unloaded, herded over to the stable area. And each family was assigned a horse stall to sleep in. On the ground, insects were skittering about. The stench of horse manure mm. was still fresh. Flies were buzzing in the air. And I remember my mother mumbling, so degrading, so degrading. And we lined up in mile-long lines for slop that they fed us. We were there for about four months. And then they announced that we're going to be traveling again, but this time by train. We'd never ridden on a train before. So we were excited, but all the grown-ups were so solemn. And some of the ladies were weeping. It was a journey of three days and two nights through the southwestern desert. And finally, on the um, third morning, we started seeing vegetation. And as we went further, more vegetation, and then lush vegetation, there were these huge, great trees rising up out of black water. My father told, told us it was the swamps. Those are swamp trees. And then... Uh, the train started to slow down and before uh, too much longer we saw barbed wire fences beside the uh, train window they built the prison camp right parallel to the uh, railroad track and then we started seeing hordes masses of Japanese people just standing there looking up at us and beyond the people, I saw rows and rows and rows of 
black tar paper barrack. One of those, uh, one unit in, in one of those uh, black tar paper barracks was to be our home. Hmm. This was a place, a camp called Camp Rower, R-O-H-W-E-R, Rower. Mm-hmm. There was a, two uh, barracks that were mashed together, and that's where we had our meals. And I remember my mother saying, I love cooking for my children. That was, this is after the uh, war. Uh, she said, the most painful part was not having a kitchen to cook for my family. Hmm. After we were released, and I was uh, in my early teens, I, I was very curious about uh, the internment. And uh, I asked my father about after dinner. Uh, uh, I peppered him with uh, questions. And he said, uh, well, one of our first meals was beef brain. And I said, what? He said, we didn't know what it was either. It was this brown stuff. That was what they fed us. So my childhood mother's kitchen didn't exist. May I ask a question about when you left your home, when you were taken from your home? You and your brother each had a box. Your father had two suitcases. You described that your mother had your baby sister in one arm and a big duffel bag in the other. And most of us can't imagine. You're told you have to pack everything up and you might not be able to come back. What do you put inside that bag to try to create a life in a place that you don't even know about? You don't even know where you're going. What did your mother, and she only had one arm because she had to carry that baby. That baby was so young. What did she put in that duffel bag to help prepare you for a journey that she couldn't even comprehend? Her duffel bag was very heavy. My mother was a stout lady, and she could heft that heavy uh, duffel bag. And on the train trip to Arkansas, for us, for Henry and me, the, us kids, my baby sister was just an infant, uh, that was a magical duffel bag. Because whenever um, we got a little whiny or uh, antsy, she would dig in there and find a Cracker Jack box or an animal cracker or a couple of lollipops. And so that was a, a wonderful gift-loaded duffel bag. But she had something else there that we didn't know about. My father didn't know what she had either. And she kept, uh, my father said, uh, tried to help her. And he, she said, no, I, I'll carry it. She had uh, bundles of uh, baby blankets uh, wrapped around something heavy. And she pulled it out and unwrapped it. And lo and behold, it was her new portable sewing machine. Mm. That was contraband. Any mechanical thing with sharp points or sharp edges was verboten. And she knew it. And she marched past all those armed MPs with that heavy bag. And when my father saw that, he was aghast. He was shocked. He didn't know what to think. 
And, and she said, children will be needing clothes. They, she was th- thinking of the future. Little children grow fast. They grow out of the closet. And so she, that's why she brought that portable sewing machine. And it was new. So she, my mother doesn't like to waste things. Mm-hmm. She doesn't, uh, even food she brought back from the mess hall so that we could have it for a snack later on. George Takei, I want to ask you about what life was like when you were finally allowed to leave those camps and you went back to Southern California. Was there any kind of re-entry program? Was there any kind of apology? Was there any kind of effort to help a family like yours get back on their feet? We were all impoverished shortly after uh, Pearl Harbor. They froze our bank accounts. They destroyed my father's business. We couldn't pay the uh, mortgage on our house, so we didn't pay it. Everything was taken from us, and we were in prison. The gates were thrown open. The government gave us uh, each, every one of us, 125,000 of us, a one-way ticket to anywhere in the United States, plus $25 to start life anew from nothing. $25. And the hatred was still intense. The war may be over, but the attitudes and the, the discrimination was intense. Jobs were near impossible. Housing was impossible. Our first home was on Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles. It was a horrific homecoming. In Skid Row, where the stench of human excrement everywhere, on the sidewalk, in the hallways of the flop house that became our home. So from that, my parents worked long, hard, killing hours, working their fingers to the bones. Uh, my father's first uh, job was as a dishwasher in a Chinatown restaurant. Only other Asians would hire us. So it took them four years of scrimping and saving and getting a little savings put together. And they had the down payment on a three-bedroom, two-bathroom home in the RO Wilshire district. As your family moved and, and, and started to establish themselves and got their financial footing and, and you know, be, were able to enter a phase of, I guess, re-entry, how did your mother take that space, the kitchen, and try to use that as a place that provided not just nourishment but also stability for her family? Well, it was... <laughs> I have fond memories of... Uh, my mother's uh, cooking after we were released and we moved to uh, on Skid Row our flop house did not have a kitchen but our next home was in the Mexican American barrio and it, everybody was Mexican 
we were the only Japanese family, much less Asian uh, family in uh, our neighborhood of East L.A. And uh, uh, my mother made uh, friends with Mrs. Gonzalez, our neighbor. And they lived in each other's kitchens. And she learned how to cook Mexican. And we, Henry and I thought it was great. The best tacos and enchiladas were made by Mrs. Takei in East L.A. Henry and I had taco eating contests. Get my mother <laughs> in the kitchen. <laughs> uh, and because we were... Uh, so enthusiastic about eating her tacos, we started gaining weight. <laughs> and my my mother, especially because uh, there was such privation, she got things that were too rich for us to eat, and, and we got fat. Walking home with my uh, friend Honorato, uh, he would uh, invite me over to visit his uh, mother's kitchen. And I still remember the rich aroma of fresh corn tortilla, just freshly made. You walked into the back door, and that was where Honorato's mother's kitchen was. And the whole room was filled with that wonderful aroma. And she would take the fresh tortilla and spread some frijoles, that's bean, on it, and roll it up. And uh, we had that as... uh, uh, after-school snack. And sometimes I uh, got Honorato to come. We, uh, we lived a little further away. Uh, Honorato to come rather than my stopping at his mother's kitchen. And my mother fixed uh, her special uh, after-school treat for us. And she wanted something very American. We had white wonder bread. And she gave Honorato and me a uh, White bread with white sugar on it. <laughs> it's a sugar sandwich. It was so good <laughs> and so bad for us. <laughs> we're, we're on a podcast, so people can't see you, but I wish they could because when you're describing this kitchen, um, the joy is apparent. You know, as you're, you're actually, you're almost pantomiming what she's cooking. You know, I see you're doing the motions and the, the wide smile on your face. Kitchens can do that for us. They can, they can provide um, a, a memory that is just so vivid that you feel it um, in your mind, but you really almost feel it in your gut, in your soul in a way also. Well, it was much better than the food from the mess hall. <laughs> but, you know, I wasn't introduced to Japanese food. Uh, when we came out of camp, because we were living in East L.A. and our budget was very, very limited. And it wasn't un- until after I was about 10 years old that they introduced me to sushi. And what a discovery that was. That fresh slice of tuna, red, almost like beef, and you bite into it. And you feel the raw meat in, uh, in your mouth and that vinegared rice. It was so delicious. And this is Japanese food. But because I spent my formative years, I couldn't use the chopstick. I never learned how to use chopstick until I was 10. And my parents uh, started to take us downtown to Little Tokyo. 
and sushi and sashimi and all the other wonderful dishes. And uh, so I am a terrible Japanese American, <laughs> unable to use. I embarrass myself in Japanese restaurants. Oh, you still can't use chopsticks. No, I still can't. It just flips oh. over. <laughs> <laughs> Some of my Caucasian friends can use it well. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You're listening to the Audible Original, Your Mama's Kitchen. Like what you're hearing? The next episode is available now, exclusively from Audible. Visit audible.com slash kitchen and hit the follow button for the latest episodes each week. You can listen to new episodes on Audible two weeks before you can hear them anywhere else. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. I love to be able to cook in a kitchen and have a good meal with the people I care about all around me. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen at a big island. And we were able to all get in and do our thing together and sit down in the adjoining dining room and have a long, loud meal and then clean up afterwards and continue the conversation. I loved being able to do that. And Airbnb allowed that to happen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. Hosting your home on Airbnb is a great way to make some extra money. It's very practical as a side hustle. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to try to lift up your game? I know I just got a new tennis racket. It's one of those newfangled things that's supposed to put a little bit of extra sauce on the ball. And it makes me want to spend a little bit of extra time on the court to perfect my backhand or work on my volleys. Here's the thing. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Available dynamic sky panoramic glass roof. Available front row massaging seats. Available 33-inch all-terrain tires. Available multi-terrain select. With all of these options, you can travel in style and comfort in the city or off-road. 
Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. What made you decide to start acting? How did that transition happen in your life? Was that something that uh, started when you were a student in high school? Or did it happen much later? My mother said, when I was born and she heard my yowl, she had the sense that uh, any child with that kind of strong voice has got to have a little theater in him. And sure mm. enough, I was a show-off kitty. Uh, I, my parents would have uh, guests at home. This is before the war. And uh, so I'd come bouncing out and say, I learned Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star today. Would you like me to do it for you? And I would perform for their, uh, for them. And in imprisonment itself, too, uh, every other month after dinner, the mess hall would be uh, cleared away. The benches would be lined up. And they showed movies, old Hollywood movies, uh, in the mess hall. And Henry and I were just transported by the movies. I, I, uh, I really remember uh, uh, Charles Lawton in uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. He was such a nice but poor man, and he suffered so much. And, I, and, and uh, my father said he, he walks straight. He's a regular human being. He's an actor. And I thought, he must be a fantastic actor. And I also remember Snow White in Mm. color. All the other movies we saw were black and white. And Snow White in color. And with all that music, uh, hi-ho, hi-ho, the uh, dwarf singing, that was transporting. And occasionally they they showed uh, uh, old Japanese samurai movies, but uh, they apparently lost the uh, 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 soundtrack for it because it always came with this uh, man who sat um, below the screen and to the side of it, and he had a little lamp, and he had a script, and he did all the dialogue uh, of all the characters, and uh, he had a, a young man there to help him with all the uh, sword fight so- uh, sounds. Uh, and uh, he did the voices for all the other actors, uh, the, the samurai, the shogun, the uh, princess. One man, the shogun would go, and the samurai would say, hey, and the princess would go, ah, One man doing all these voices. The princess, the shogun, the samurai. Absolutely fascinating. One man. And my father said, that's an actor. And sure mm-hmm. enough, when we were released from camp, my father bought a portable radio while we were still living on Skid Row. And suddenly, the world opened up. I Green Hornet, Bee Bar B, and the uh, Bobby Benson and the uh, Riders of the Range 
it was the movies that helped me escape the barbed wire fence vicariously. And on Skid Row, I went to New York and saw uh, the uh, the uh, Green Hornet roaring through uh, uh, Manhattan and uh, um, cowboy stories of the American West. All thanks to the radio. Yes. And I heard... Uh, Gene Autry, I think it was, who sang Don't Fence Me In and a popular song like the way we thought when we were fenced in. Oh, give me land, lots of land under starry skies above. Don't fence me in. Let me ride through the wide open country that I love. Don't fence me in. This box uh, called radio was wonderful. And this is what freedom means. Music, entertainment, and, and uh, movies were staged for radio. Lux Radio Theater. And I still remember the music that came on. This is William Keeley with Lux Radio Theater. I mean, it was a wonderful magic box. And just sound and voice, the human voice, provided me with all that escape. As you grew as an actor and started taking on more and more roles, you know, many of us know, love, will forever remember you as Sulu. When you auditioned for that role, did you understand that playing that particular role on that particular show would forever define your life and particularly your life as an actor? I didn't quite think that way, but I thought it was a great, wonderful opportunity, for uh, first of all, for me personally. It, it was a pilot film for a series, which means if it's sold, it's regular employment. But also, Gene Roddenberry, the creative Star Trek, mm -hmm. uh, explained to me something about the, his philosophy for the show. He said, the 1960s is turbulent with a lot of stories that could be told. The civil rights movement with African Americans, uh, with the eloquent... Uh, voice of Dr. Martin Luther King, oh, Viet Vietnam War, with the peace movement, as well as those that fiercely supported the war. And he wanted to be able to reflect some of that, but how to do it? Because TV is an advertising medium. And he said he found a way to do it. He was going to use metaphor and put the metaphor in the future, 300 years in the future. Astronauts soaring through space in a spaceship, round and circular, like this blue planet that we inhabit. And the strength of this blue planet is its diversity, coming together, respecting each other, in fact, taking joy and pride in each other, and finding that diversity engaging, interesting, as well as our strength. And here's this planet with 
these people here in North America. And he said, the North American is going to be the captain. And he didn't cast an American. He cast a Canadian as the captain. Here's Europe. And uh, uh, the, the Scots are famous for seafaring. And so the engineer was a Scotsman. And here's yes. Africa. And that's a lot of people with a great history. And here's this vast area called Asia. But he had a problem with uh, depicting the Asian. Because Asia is many countries, many languages, many cultures. Mm -hmm. And mid-20th century Asia was turbulent with warfare, colonization, rebellion. And he didn't want to suggest taking sides because every Asian surname is nationally specific. Mm -hmm. Tanaka is Japanese. Mm -hmm. Wong is Chinese. Kim is Korean. And if he chose any of those names, he's taking sides. He wanted to find a name that suggested all of Asia, its diversity. And he had a map of Asia pinned on his office wall, and he was staring at it. And he found off the coast of the Philippines a sea called the Sulu Sea. And he thought, the waters of a sea touch all shores. That's what the Asian character will be. And all of that diversity coming together, working together in concert for a common goal and contributing this vantage point, this expertise uh, from that culture and this uh, unique, interesting point from another uh, culture. That's what's going to give this starship this strength and boldly go where no one had gone before. And so I got, I loved the idea and I desperately wanted to get cast in it. And of course, I knew that this character as part of the leadership team, I would be representing people that look like this. And I went to my agent and said, whatever it takes, get me this role. And it came to be. And Star Trek went on and on. Next Generation. It's still it's, going on. And new shows, new spinoffs still going on. 57 years. Isn't that something? That's something. That's something. And you are much beloved. Much beloved. I'm wondering if there is any special things that your family did to celebrate the holidays. Um, did they celebrate Christmas? Were there any other holidays that they celebrated? Because the kitchen is often a center of activity during those special times. Christmas is a special holiday, but the Japanese celebrate New Year's because that is the uh, Japanese big uh, winter holiday. And uh, for that, the traditional thing is we visit each other's homes and we also eat at our relatives' homes. And my mother would start cooking Japanese food this time uh, from a week before 
uh, New Year's. And on New Year's morning, the dining room table will be covered with various dishes, exotic dishes, some delicious, others a little bit more <laughs> exotic and demanding. <laughs> That's a very diplomatic word. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, our uncle and his family would come and sit and ta- uh, eat, mostly eat and talk, and, and the kids would uh, play. So when um, when you were a kid and you described some of the things were delicious and some were, as you said, exotic, <laughs> what would fall in the delicious category and what was considered uh, exotic and, and maybe not exactly delicious but interesting? I love sushi and especially my mother's sushi because they weren't all the restaurant kind of sushis. Some were, uh, 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 she would take uh, a, a cube of uh, uh, tofu, fry it, and carve out the uh, inside so that she would have a tofu skin shell and stuff that with uh, her uh, special uh, uh, rice concoction, vinegar mm. rice, but mm-hmm. with little bits of uh, carrots. And we would call them footballs because mm. they look like footballs, brown. The Japanese word is inari, her inari sushi. I, I, would, I love that. What I considered exotically challenging <laughs> was what she called gobo. Uh, it's um, a gray root that's um, uh, cut into uh, a string-like shape, and it's fried. And... It tastes like gray root fried. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's no no sauce, no seasoning. Just (laughs) tastes like woodsy. (laughs) Well, you dip it in uh, soy sauce, and that's the flavoring. (laughs) And then gnawing, gnawing, gnawing. (laughs) Well, it's probably good for you. Probably has some sort of you know ups your vitamin intake. You know, build your resistance. It's supposed probably... to have a lot of vitamins. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she would say it's good for you, and <laughs> she cut it long because the length suggests longevity. Okay, and, and that's why so you had maybe, that at the beginning of the year. Yes, and I'm 86 years old now, and because of a lot of gnawing on the gray root, fried, <laughs> dipped in soy sauce. <laughs> Well, I wish you love, laughter, and longevity. Thank you very much. I have enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for sharing your stories. Thank you so much for all that you do to lift up um, America and Americans, particularly those whose voices are not always heard. And I am so tempted to say, (laughs) I'm just tempted to say, uh, Mr. Takei, take us out. (laughs) Aye, aye, ma'am. Live long and prosper. (laughs) Live long and prosper. Much love to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I enjoyed the conversation. Man, I really loved this conversation. I cannot wait to try my hand at those delicious little Japanese footballs in my own kitchen. This is a story 
that will stay with me for a long time. I am so deeply impressed by George's warmth and his humor and his resilience in the face of everything that he's experienced. And that Gabo route he mentioned, I hope it's on the menu as he celebrates every new year because we would be lucky indeed to get a lot more years of stories and humor and wisdom from George Takei. If you want to try his family recipes in your kitchen too, check out my Instagram page at Michelle underscore underscore Norris. That's two underscores. Thanks for joining us. Make sure and come back to hear all of our episodes. Make sure and subscribe and let us know what you think. We love hearing from you. Take good care. This has been a Higher Ground and Audible original produced by Higher Ground Studios. Senior producer, Natalie Rin. Producer, Sonia Tan. And associate producer, Angel Carreras. Sound design and engineering from Andrew Epen and Roy Baum. Higher Ground Audio's editorial assistants are Jenna Levin and Camilla Thurdicus. Executive producers for Higher Ground are Nick White, Mukta Mohan, Dan Fearman, and me, Michelle Norris. Executive producers for Audible are Nick D'Angelo and Ann Hepperman. The show's closing song is 504 by The Soul Rebels. Editorial and web support from Melissa Bear and Say What Media. Our talent booker is Angela Peluso. And special thanks this week to Threshold Studios. Chief content officer for Audible is Rachel Giazza. And that's it. Goodbye, everybody. Copyright 2023 by Higher Ground Audio, LLC. Sound recording copyright 2023 by Higher Ground Audio, LLC. Higher Ground. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to try to lift up your game? I know, I just got a new tennis racket. It's one of those newfangled things that's supposed to put a little bit of extra sauce on the ball. And it makes me want to spend a little bit of extra time on the court to perfect my backhand or work on my volleys. Here's the thing. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Available dynamic sky panoramic glass roof. Available front row massaging seats. Available 33-inch all-terrain tires. Available multi-terrain select. With all of these options, you can travel in style and comfort in the city or off-road. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? 
Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.